0: This evening we're continuing our series on the Ten Commandments, or the Ten Words, as the Bible describes them. And it's helpful for us to think about the Ten Commandments as the Ten Words, not just because the Bible uses this language, as we see in Exodus 34, verse 28, and Deuteronomy 4, verse 13, but because... God's ten words include more than just commandments. As we will see throughout this series, God's moral law includes things like imperatives, promises, and warnings. And so each of the ten words from God is a revelation of God's character that has vast implications. And I made reference to the Westminster Larger Catechism last time as a helpful, exhaustive guide that teases out the implications of each commandment, both positive and negative. And we won't be able to cover uh, these in full throughout this sermon series, but if you're curious, I would encourage you to study these at home, uh, particularly the section on the Ten Commandments found in the Westminster Larger Catechism. And take t- take some time to study the Bible references as well that are footnoted there. You will be surprised at how far-reaching the implications of each commandment uh, really is. And as God speaks these ten commandments or ten words to Israel from Sinai, and as He speaks to us now, God is forming us into the new creation. He has called us to be. In our union with Christ, as we are conformed to the image of Christ each day, as we put to death the deeds of the flesh, and as we follow God's moral law, we are formed as new creations. God spoke 10 times in the creation of all things. In Genesis chapter 1, when God creates everything, we find this phrase repeated Ten times, and God spoke. And God speaks ten times from Sinai in this work of recreating his people, Israel. And God's ten words reflect his moral character that shape how we are to live as his chosen people, as his special possession. As we now give our attention to this first word that God speaks, you shall have no other gods before me, what we see is that this commandment is a summons to true worship. Jesus himself says to us that the first and greatest commandment is that you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. Jesus provides this as a summary of the first table of God's moral and eternal law. And there is a reason that this first word is concerned with the worship of our triune God, one God in three persons. True worship is what we were created for. And everyone worships something, whether they acknowledge it or not, because we have each been created by God in his image, believer and unbeliever and embedded within our our human makeup is the impulse to worship. And before the fall of mankind, before sin and death entered the world, humanity worshipped God exclusively and in accordance with how we were designed to live. But after we sinned and fell in Adam, our worship has become disordered As the Apostle Paul writes in Romans chapter 1, verse 25, the unbeliever now worships and serves the creature rather than the creator. And you might hear this and think, that that sounds a little abstract, especially in our Western context, right? We don't keep physical idols above our mantelpiece. We don't have images of our ancestors that we cry out to. Now, the gods of our Western age tend to be much more subtle, but they are certainly there. Just think about what it is that people live for in this culture today. Success, money, career, fame, comfort, vacations, family, hobbies, and so on. When we consider the fundamental question, what is it that you live for? The idols of our heart are quickly exposed. And many of these things can be good things, things that can be enjoyed to the glory of God, and we ought to enjoy them to the glory of God when they are rightly ordered within our lives. But the devil seeks to make these earthly things ultimate. And for the unregenerate uh, uh, unregenerate soul, the worship of false gods, whether material or immaterial, is inevitable. And so everyone is a worshiper. And so the question is never, whom do you worship? Or even more basic, do you worship? But rather the question is, what will you worship? Will you worship God alone in spirit and truth? Will you cast aside those competing allegiances and idols and render your heart to God alone? The first commandment begins with God because it is from the worship of God alone that everything else flows Thomas Aquinas says that the end of human life and society is God. And he says because of this, the ten words begin with directing mankind to God. Martin Luther says that everything proceeds from the power of the first commandment. In other words, all of life flows from who or what we worship Where is our loyalty? What are the things that we love most? The way we answer that informs our ethical system. Because right living, right worship leads to right living. And because we were created with the chief purpose of glorifying God and enjoying Him, we must view this first commandment as the foundation of our existence. We exist to bring glory to God. We exist to bring honor to his name. We exist to worship him as creator and Lord of heaven and earth. And this is the heart of the first commandment, your key takeaway for this evening. We have been created to worship God, the true and living God, and we exist to bring him glory. Let's now look at, at our Bibles together, Exodus 20, and I'll start from verse 2. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. Now, one of the things that we notice right away is that God's first word begins with a historical overview of the Exodus. Exodus. Israel, God's chosen people, they have been set free from Egypt, and now God calls them to live as a free people. In other words, we see God remind Israel that he has delivered them, and that now they are to walk in newness of life. And this is true of every Christian who is set free from the power of sin and death. Christ welcomes all sinners to come as they are, but when he sets them free, he says, go and sin no more. All who are set free from bondage to sin are called to present their lives as living sacrifices, to be wholly devoted to the worship of God alone. Those whom the Son sets free are free indeed, and with our newfound freedom, we are summoned to worship the one true God. Israel's history also provides helpful context to how we understand the first commandment. The nations around Israel were polytheistic. Uh, That means they're, they're prone to the worship of gods, of many gods, made by hands. And the nations around Israel had gods for everything, God's for fertility, God's for agriculture, for example. And Israel's desire to be like the surrounding culture was insatiable. Even as Moses comes down the mountain from Sinai, after receiving the two tablets of stone, he is greeted by a golden calf, an idol made by hands. And God's anger is kindled against Israel for their idolatry. When God speaks to Israel, when God speaks to us and he says, you shall have no other gods before me, he is calling Israel to be faithful. God is calling Israel to a life of fidelity. And this is really a significant point because the Bible often connects idolatry to sexual immorality. Israel's idolatry in particular is often phrased in the Bible in terms of sexual immorality. In the book of Hosea, we see that Israel is referred to as the unfaithful prostitute who abandons her bridegroom. And so we see that spiritual adultery is an abandonment of our first love. When Israel forsakes the love of the true God for the love of false gods, she violates the covenant between her and God. And this really makes sense to us in terms of how we even think about marriage, right? Committing adultery, cheating on a spouse, it is a violation of the promises you made on your wedding day. And so it is when we worship other gods, when we make earthly things ultimate. Now there's another aspect to the first word that we need to deal with. When God says, you shall have no other gods before me, in the Hebrew, God literally says, you shall have no other gods before my face, or you shall have no other gods before my presence. And what this highlights for us is God's omnipresence, that he is everywhere present. God is a spirit. He is infinite, he is eternal and unchangeable. He is all-powerful, he is all-knowing, and he is all-seeing. And because he is everywhere present and all-seeing, this first word tells us that idolatry includes the secret parts of our lives that we think that we can hide from everyone. We are prone to have our little pet idols, our secret friends that we turn to in the dark and shadowy corners of our mind and heart. And sometimes in the moment when we're faced with temptation, we deceive ourselves and we say, well, no one's, no one's gonna know. No one will ever find out. I'll just keep this to myself. And this first commandment tells us that God is everywhere present, that we can't hide. And that means we not only need to deal with our material idols, but also the immaterial ones, those sinister idols that creep into our hearts and vie for our affections. And the great danger of playing nice with the idols of our hearts is that they can destroy us From within. In Psalm 115, verse 8, the psalmist tells us that when we play nice with the idols of our heart, we actually become like them, that we become senseless, that we become dull, that we become unable to function. When we are consumed with love for ungodly things, we self destruct. Augustine says that the essence of sin is disordered love. You see, sin is, sin is the love of the wrong thing. It is principally a violation of the first commandment. And putting our hope and trust in false gods is absurd because we can never find our salvation in anything apart from Christ in his book entitled Counterfeit Gods uh, Timothy Keller has this wonderful epilogue where he provides these helpful questions for every Christian to identify okay what are the idols of my heart and I'm going to paraphrase them for you but they essentially go like this here's the first one what is it that you daydream about in your free time I mean, that's, that's insightful. What, what are those things that you constantly mull over and over at the office or at the job site that will tell you something about what you love? Here's a second question. How do you spend your money? Now, that can be uncomfortable for us to answer, but if we pull up our credit card statement and, and we have an honest look, what... Do our dollars, what do they say about what we love? Here's the third one he offers. How do you respond to God when you don't get your way? Do you resort to shaking your fist at God? Or can you be like Job, who says, the Lord gives and the Lord takes. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Here's the last question, uh, Keller gives to us. Blessed, uh, he says, what is your most uncontrollable emotion? And what does that tell you about your heart? For example, if you become filled with uncontrollable rage when someone cuts you off, which can happen a lot in Philadelphia, I know. What does your uncontrollable anger say about what you love? These are difficult questions to answer. One of the most profound biblical counselors I've ever read, David Pallison, he says this. Here is the most basic question which God poses to each human heart. Has something or someone besides Jesus Christ taken title to your heart's functional trust, preoccupation, loyalty, service, fear, and delight? To who or what do you look for life-sustaining stability, security, and acceptance? What do you really want and expect out of life? What would really make you happy? What would make you an acceptable person? Where do you look for power and success? These questions or, sim- or similar ones tease out whether we serve God Or idols, whether we look for salvation from Christ or from false saviors. So, the question that we need to answer tonight is really this Where is your allegiance? The gods of this age are clamoring for your attention. This world demands your allegiance, it wants you to conform, to bow the knee. To the latest movement, to the latest ideology, to the latest charismatic politician. And we can become so infatuated and caught up in the things of this world that we lose sight of heaven. We can become so earthly minded that we forget where our ultimate allegiance lies. Brothers and sisters, we are exiles here. Our citizenship is in heaven. And our sole allegiance belongs to Christ. It cannot compete with other allegiances. As Jesus says in Matthew chapter 6, verse 24, no one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. It is impossible To serve two competing masters. Beloved in the Lord, will you forsake the fleeting idols of this world that desperately clamor for your attention and for your allegiance? Will you cling to Christ? Because He alone can quench your thirst, He alone can satisfy the deep longings and desires of your soul. One of the pressing issues that faces us today is the idol of self. We as a society have placed the individual at the center of the world. Our sense of wrong and right is guided from within and our actions are are constantly driven by our fickle appetites. And the Apostle Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he writes these words for us In Philippians chapter three, he writes this. For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you even with tears walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction. Now listen to this. Their God is their belly and they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. Paul isn't saying here that they worship the organ that is the stomach. But rather, Paul is saying that enemies of the cross of Jesus Christ, they worship what their belly represents. They worship the endless appetite, their continual craving to satisfy and indulge the self. Brothers and sisters, the worship of the self is a violation of the first commandment and we desperately need to retrieve this reality both within the church and outside her walls. We don't exist to glorify ourselves. No, we exist for God. The Bible offers us an entirely different anthropology than what we see today. God's word says that you are not your own, that you have been bought with a price The Christian life is one of dying to self rather than worshiping the self. And this worldly notion that we exist for our own happiness, not to worship God, but for our own happiness, this notion has led us into dark places. When we worship ourselves, we dethrone our Maker as Lord. When we make ourselves the ultimate judge of right and wrong rather than God, We mock the very one who formed us in our mother's womb. Brothers and sisters, the life of the Christian, it is one of self-negation. We are called to die to self and to live to Christ. We are called to put to death that which is evil in us and put on the new mind that we have in Christ. This is why the Apostle Paul can say in Galatians chapter 2, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. And so this first word that we find in Exodus chapter 20, it calls us to reject the God of self to recognize that we are not at the center of the universe, but that God is, and that we exist to worship him and to walk humbly before him in newness of life. Well, as we come to a close this evening, let's consider one last piece of this first commandment. If the first commandment prohibits the worship of other gods, it means that God requires that we worship the one true God. Well, who is that one true God? Many of you know that Christianity, it is inherently monotheistic. We worship one God. And in John chapter 10, Jesus says, I and the Father are one. And as we read in John chapter 6 the Father draws us to himself by the power of the Holy Spirit. And this is important for us as we think about the first commandment because Jesus was actually rejected. He was rejected because the Pharisees believed he fought, he violated this first word. The scribes and the chief priests charged Jesus with false claims of deity. They charged him with promoting the violation of the first commandment. And in their minds, they thought, Jesus is claiming to be another God, not the living and true God, not the one God, Yahweh. Jesus went willingly to the cross for us and our salvation on the accusation that he was blaspheming the one true God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But but as I referenced uh, in John's Gospels, we see that Jesus Christ is actually the one true and living God. He is the God that we see here in Exodus chapter 20. Jesus is the Alpha and the Omega. He is the beginning and the end. And there is one divine essence, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And these three persons exist in the unity of the Godhead. One God forever to be praised and worshipped. And Jesus says in John chapter 8 verse 58, Truly, truly, I say to you, Before Abraham was, I am. You see, our risen Lord, He is the I am that I am, the name that was revealed to Moses in the burning bush. Jesus is not another God. He is the only true and living God. We worship one God. We worship the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. But as the word of God tells us, our one triune God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. As we reflect on the nature of God's law It's easy to see how we fall short each day. We know that we are unworthy of his grace. We know that we desperately need his presence in our life every day. When we read God's eternal and moral law, when we hear this first word, we know intuitively, we already know that we fail in our worship of the true God. But remember, this is the first use of God's law. God's perfect law of liberty. It is a mirror for us. We see in the law. We see our need for Christ. We see our own unrighteousness and we see the need to cling to Christ because he alone is righteous. So as you sit under God's word tonight and you sense the Holy Spirit convicting you, of the idols of your heart, whatever they may be, flee to the cross of Christ. That is what God's first word ought to do in your hearts. Flee to the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. You will find refuge for your soul under the shadow of his wing. But then also, brothers and sisters, be reminded be reminded that, that resurrection power is truly at work in your hearts. You have the mind of Christ and you are commanded, you are commanded to walk in resurrection life. And this is the third use of God's law. You don't render your whole being as a living sacrifice to God because it somehow earns your salvation. No, rather you You render your whole being, you render yourself as a living sacrifice because the Spirit of Christ dwells in you. You are good trees bearing good fruit if you are in Christ. You blossom in the beautifying grace of sanctification as new creations called to live a life of obedience. And in the hour of temptation, May the spirit of Christ who dwells in our hearts, may he grant you strength to ward off any spiritual attack. As Jesus did battle with the enemy in Luke chapter 4 when he was summoned to worship false gods, may we with Christ resoundingly say, as it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. And may we ever strive towards the hope of glory, remembering that we were created to worship and that our souls can only find their longings satisfied by God himself. Let's pray together. Our God and Father, you have fashioned us and made us in your image to bring glory to your great name. And we ask, O oh gracious God, that you would convict us of sin, and that you would free us from the bondage of any idols that are seeking a stronghold in our heart, that are vying for our affections, competing for our allegiance. O oh Lord, we do ask that we would more and more grow in loving you fully. Give each of us a greater desire to pledge our sole allegiance. Christ and may all these other competing affections and clamoring voices be drowned out by our love for you we pray these things in Christ's name and for his sake amen